Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In this episode, Satyan sits down with Matthew Lindley, founding writer of the AI newsletter Supervised. The goal of Supervised is to help readers understand the implications of new technologies and the team building it. Prior to Supervised, Matt was Business Insider's lead reporter on AI and big data. In this episode, Matt dives into LLMs, vector databases, and the rivalry between Databricks and Snowflake. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. We bring relief to a world of garbage in, garbage out with enterprise data solutions that deliver intelligence in, intelligence out. Learn how we fuel success in self-service analytics, data governance, and cloud data migration at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Today on Data Radicals, we have the journalist Matt Lindley. Matt has spent the last decade reporting on the tech industry at publications like Business Insider, The Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed News, and TechCrunch. Most recently, he created Supervised, a newsletter that covers AI and big data and helps folks navigate the complex space. Matthew has extensive experience with Python, SQL, C++, and supervised modeling, so he's writing from a place of knowledge. Matt? Welcome to Data Radicals. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about Supervised. That's the thing that you just started, Mm -hmm. hard to do, to build a newsletter. So they say. I think it is. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it is. It looks from the outside like it is. So what is it? Why did you do it? Basically, we're going back to November now, which feels like 10 years ago at this point, when ChatGPT came out. And I was taking a break from my work at Business Insider, where I was covering big data and AI. Again, this predates ChatGPT. So we're talking hugging face, weights and biases, snowflake, Databricks, like all the original machine learning. I guess we called it MLOps at the time. And The legacy crew. The legacy crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah we need a name for it, right? We need like the pre-era. And while I was away, I was looking for something to just kind of keep up to speed, something that was a little bit more technical because I have some experience doing all of this stuff, but not so really deep in the weeds that a lot of these other publications and newsletters where they go like hyper-technical, it's concerned with the intricacies of a loss function and things like that. And I couldn't really find something in the middle. So of course, I asked 100 people what they thought and what they were reading and trying to get some sort of feedback. And generally, it seemed there wasn't a lot happening in that space. And when I came back to journalism from working in analytics, the idea was to write about the things I used when I was working in analytics and doing some work in data science. And so I thought, okay, well, I can potentially lean on my experience, having been a practitioner to a certain extent, obviously I'm not the expert here, to try and go one step deeper, to focus on the people who are making the decisions, founders, buyers, practitioners, the people that know enough to be dangerous. Someone runs up to me and says, hey, I need 150 weights and biases licenses. My first question is not what's weights and biases, it's what need 150. Tell me more about that. So that's the direction that I was thinking about when I first launched it. So on one level, you've got sort of headline news where you get reporting like, ah, weights and hugging face just raised at a $4.5 billion valuation from (laughs) Salesforce Ventures. And then you've got the other level, which is product-oriented blogs that can be super detailed, highly specific, and you're trying to cater to the person that wants to understand what the company is and what the product does, but perhaps not live the product experience in the process of having to do that. Right. It's what are people talking about that no one's writing about? So not how to use Langchain. What do people think about Langchain? Mm-hmm. You talk to as many people as you possibly can, and you'll find out that Langchain is actually a very divisive subject. And the kind of story you see on Supervise is not, is Langchain good or bad? The story is, it's complicated, and here's why it's complicated. 
Right. And that's the kind of information that, frankly, you'd really only get with one-on-one conversations or perhaps with an industry event or meeting where people can get into a room and talk about actual deployment success or the like. And you're capturing this by talking to actual practitioners and users. Yeah. Hopefully I'm doing your work for you. I'm going to a conference so you don't have to. Save you like $1,000 or something. And so is that where the name comes from? It's like a sort of supervision of the market in addition to talking about supervised learning? It's kind of a play on a joke in some interview loops with data scientists, their PhDs are mind-blowingly smarter than me. But you know, you'll walk through a scenario or a problem and they'll just jump straight to, and then I'll build a neural net. It's like, hold on, that didn't need to be a neural net. It turns out it's literally just a really easy supervised learning problem. And you can use it, it's five lines of code with scikit. And we've gone into this great era of LLMs and sort of modern AI. Supervised learning does a lot really well, and it's much cheaper and much easier to put together. Hence the name Supervise, where the idea is like a lot of these problems are a lot simpler than we're making them out to be, and maybe we're hitting a nail with a sledgehammer here. Although if you do look at the logo of it, it's kind of a play on gradient descent, which is the first one we all learn when we're going through this stuff. Very cool. It's interesting. The last podcast that I just did was an interview with... Anupam Jenna, who's basically a Harvard medical professor, mm-hmm. and he's done a lot of work on medical practices and studying patterns. And apparently, the best week to get a heart attack is the week that the American Academy of Cardiologists are having their conference. And it's because they tend to overprescribe procedures. Mm-hmm. And so, this idea that sort of expertise can be overapplied, I think it also extends to the context of tools and algorithms. And when do you need this advanced thing versus when do you need just like a very basic thing? And that's a hard thing to figure out. It's a hard thing to figure out for people who are practitioners. Also, probably a hard thing to figure out, I think, especially for the people who are trying to buy products in this space, because a lot of people who are not using the data products or the data itself don't have an idea of where their spend is going. Do you speak to a lot of people who are trying to figure that out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest issues now, which again goes back three, I mean, I'm sure you've dealt with this as well, goes back like three, four years, is that data scientists doing the work of data analysts and vice versa sometimes, depending on which company, which title you're given. And the reality is that most companies don't need intense, deep learning operations. They need to know, is this group of customers going to churn? That's a problem that gives me an immediate return on my investment because I can know, okay, well, I can sick my customer success team on this cohort, which is at risk of churning. And it's not like you don't need a PhD in order to build a churn model. And so what we had with this challenge was we had these incredibly smart, intelligent data scientists coming in, but the problems that needed to be solved in most organizations were pretty straightforward, which was basically like a little bit of exploratory data analysis, putting together a model, most of the time collecting the correct data set and cleaning it and curating it, which is the universal problem that we all face and will never go away, I expect. We're going to continue to spend all of our time on that. And then putting it in production and monitoring it, seeing if it drifts, seeing if it starts redlining along those lines. And that's not a Transformers-based approach necessarily. And so it's this funny thing where for a long time we had a lot of technical firepower, but the actual answers you needed were not everyone was building a crazy recommendation algorithm. I just need to know if my customers are going to churn. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And I think that 80-20 rule applies to analytics and tooling just as much as it applies to everything else in the world. And it's also, I think, why like real revolutionary technologies are really hard to find because they're sexy and then there's actually effective. So who are you writing supervised for? What does the community of users look like? Do you know who's reading the newsletter? And do you have a sense for that? Or I love this question because people assume I have like a grandmaster plan and I'm just putting it together while it's in the air. Although, to be fair, I do have a target audience in mind, which is the kinds of people that 
have to make these decisions, these important decisions for what tools am I going to use? What products am I going to use? At some point, do I go open source or closed source model? And when you're evaluating a contract for some of these things, like they're not in prod for like a year or sometimes generously a year. And so when I'm signing this contract, I'm signing away the first year with like not really getting any real return. That's not true for everyone, obviously, but like when you're looking at a lot of data analytics and machine learning products. So what I wanted to write for was someone who, you know, you can be a little flippant with the terminology because they know enough to be dangerous. They probably are able to run Llama on their laptop because it's really easy to do. It's shockingly easy to do. They know how to use the Hugging Face Transformers module. They know, they're aware of the differences between the GPT-4 and GPT-3.5 Turbo, things along those lines, but they need to go one step deeper, right? So when you look at GPT-3.5 Turbo and GPT-4, like what are the actual like differences from an operations perspective? Like one's much more expensive than the other. How much more expensive is it? And just trying to understand what is the business impact of the decision that I'm going to make, which is a technical decision, but often there's a pretty substantial dollar value associated with it. Yeah. So you're writing for technological practitioners. And, you know, I, and I read the newsletter. It's a pretty advanced newsletter. Like, if you didn't know anything about data or analytics, you might have a hard time digesting it. But if you're somebody who's in the weeds and a practitioner or understanding how to build these tools or, frankly, just even have some casual association, it can be massively valuable. The nuggets you get out of the newsletter are pretty hard to discover. That's the hope. Hopefully uh, someone from, you know, like Databricks or Snowflake is listening and then the entire MLE team starts subscribing to it. That'd be beautiful. (laughs) That's the target audience that I think about. Yeah. And I think in some sense we create that which we would wish existed. So I presume this is something you wish you had. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's the other thing is like I couldn't find it and I wanted to read it. So have you been able to get feedback from people who have actually listened to it? And yeah, I, I mean, I live and die by feedback and specifically brutal feedback. I love brutal feedback. Oh, what's the worst feedback so far that you received? Or it should be the hardest feedback, because the worst feedback is like the feedback that doesn't actually affect you. So, The most surprising feedback that I've received is that when I first launched it, I wanted to do like three a week, and I was worried that it was going to spam people. And it turns out actually people like that, because it's sort of, again, it's like, what are people talking about that no one's writing about? It's understanding like the meta discussion around all of these tools, which is a kind of conversational thing. And so it's following the conversation along. And so that was surprising. I think a lot of the more challenging feedback is someone will subscribe and read it and say, hey, like, you're not really defining these terms. Like, this is a little too technical. Like, can you go a little bit deeper into this? What does it mean when you're talking about this score? And I look at that and I sort of think, okay, where's that balance to strike where it's great that someone who's not necessarily as technical and doesn't fully understand these concepts is reading it, and they sort of thought it would be valuable, but it went over their heads. And I hear that a lot. It's like, oh yeah, like a lot of it goes over my head, but it's really interesting. And it's like, well, it's difficult because it's like, I really love that you're reading it, and I like that you thought it was interesting, but you're not necessarily my target reader when I think about where am I like truly trying to like add dollar value? And so it's hard, it's hard to strike that balance, right? And it's a little devastating when you get a message like that, and you're like, I can't do that. I can't serve this customer. I can't serve this reader. You can't do 101 on LLMs every single time you write an article. Right. Otherwise, you'd be spending 50% of the airspace doing that. Oh, probably closer to 75. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. But this moment has been a particularly interesting and transformational moment in terms of just the amount of light, the amount of venture investment in the ecosystem, the number of companies that have exploded, the amount of imagination that has been kindled given all of this innovation 
how do you explain it to people? I mean, that problem still remains, which is that there are people who are sort of living in the world of, oh, I have an LLM that I'm running on my laptop, or I deeply understand the difference between different language models. But then there's this entire world of people who are just like, what? Like, what's a language model? Mm -hmm. Like, what is Gen AI? Like, so maybe we can use a little bit of the time, because I think there's probably more listeners in that latter category than there are in the Forbes category for this podcast. So if I'm just coming into this space, what do I need to know and what do I need to care about? If I'm just not a practitioner, but somebody who just cares about how AI is going to affect the world, how do I think about this space? Yeah. I mean, I think part of why this caught the level of fire it has is that anyone can use it. You can fire up ChatGPT. You don't even have to explain what an LLM is to someone. It's like, oh, just go to chat.openai.com. I think that's the URL. And it works right away. And it's cool as hell. It's the first time you use it, you're like, oh my God, I'm literally like talking to something. And so that kind of like aha customer moment that you think about in the enterprise sales cycle, which usually comes at like a webinar or like a sales call or a demo or something like that where the light bulb goes off, it's immediate. They use it for the first time and they're like, holy crap. And so this idea of like, how does an LLM work? I think the second you touch one for the first time, you get it right away. Now there's an enormous level of intricacy and complication once you go a single step deeper, which is the differences between the LLMs. How do you think about crafting the right prompt and knowing that they can go off the rails really fast if you're not careful and the whole network of tools that are associated on top of it. But when you think about it from an education perspective, the education really only starts when you are talking to people that are like, okay, this is really cool. I've tried it. It's awesome. It's cool as hell. But how can I use it to improve my business because I can improve my daily life. I can have it write my emails for me. It's fine. It does some things really well. And there's, I'm sure, like there's tons of unsanctioned chat GPT usage inside companies everywhere. But it's like, okay, how do I build a business on top of this? And then it starts to get complicated. Then you have to start understanding how expensive is OpenAI? How do you integrate it? And whether or not do I go closed source or open source? And so the learning curve you know, starts off very, very, very easy because you can get it right away. And then it quickly becomes one of the hardest possible products to understand once you start trying to dig into it. I mean, even that first question, what is an LLM? So there are different types of LLMs. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense for what are the different types of LLMs that might exist and like how much differentiation is there out there? Are there hundreds? Are there thousands? There's 50 ways you can answer that, obviously. Mm -hmm. The kind of big delineator is, you know, there's closed source and open source. And so the closed sourced are the ones that you find from OpenAI, Anthropic, Cohere, some of these other ones where they handle the developments and build them and they handle managing the data around it, all of that. And they provide either a front end for an average user or an API that's pretty actually, actually like very alarmingly easy to implement. Like you can put together a chatbot in like two seconds if you wanted to and stream lit and with the OpenAI API. And then when you go over to the open source side, it's hard to even count, keep up at this point. The Hugging Face, speaking of super valuable companies, has a leaderboard that keeps track of the most powerful, quote unquote, powerful models. And it's hundreds of models and they, there's new ones every single day. But the part of the promise of those open source models is a process called fine tuning, which is effectively a way of saying, hey, like I want to teach this a little bit more about how my company operates, whether that's using my emails, my Slack messages. I want to teach it how to tell me about our Slack etiquette internally. If I'm filing a bug report, then what is the format for that bug when I'm posting it in an incident channel or something along those lines? And that process starts to get a little hairy pretty quickly. But what you get from that is this whole universe of hyper-specialized LLMs. So you can have ones that are really good for coding. You can have ones that are really good for evaluating legal contracts, 
their sort of train to focus specifically on legal language and things like that. You can get ones that can be an onboarding buddy for me because I have my own personal data that's in Confluence and Jira and Slack and God knows how many other places internally. But I can sort of train it to basically do these specific things that I want it to do. The rabbit hole gets deep very, very, very quickly, as you can see. And so these LLMs, these models, what are the priors or the primitives for them? So you've basically got, you know, GPT three or four, right? You've got the data set on which the models are being trained. And then I think you mentioned this thing called prompts, which like prompt engineering, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, the other element that is an input to most of these models. And I would imagine if we take your contracts use case, the model would take a set of algorithms and then train those algorithms on this set of contracts that you might have, thousands, millions, hundreds, whatever it Mm -hmm. might be. What is this prompt thing? Like, how does that work? And how do people actually interact with the models to train them or tune them? Yeah, so prompting is much more complicated than it seems. You can ask GPT for a question and you'll get an answer and your mileage may vary on its accuracy, obviously. But there's a whole set of techniques that go into crafting a prompt when you're literally just asking a question. So specifically, say I'm asking a question about, I have 50,000 contracts that I've put together from my sales team for advertising or whatever. I don't want to say, hey, help me craft a new contract for this type of customer. It might not do a good job of that. But what you could do is give it a couple of examples. So it's like, we did this contract for this customer, and it was this way. We did this contract for this customer, and it was this way. And we did this contract for this customer, and this way. Following this pattern, can you please write a contract for a customer that's like that? It's called few-shot learning. So you're giving a little bit of examples, and you can give them instructions on how to do it. Because these models are actually surprisingly flexible and are somewhat reasonable to work with. And so the challenge there is they're very sensitive. Right? You can put a space at the end of a prompt, and it'll completely change the outcome if you're not careful. And so a lot of it is like coaxing out the best possible response. So you look at companies that are built on top of products like OpenAI, like GPT-35 Turbo or whatnot, what they've done is they spent their time crafting the exact right prompts for the end user. So it's sort of abstracted out and they don't have to see it. Whereas, you know, if I'm sort of like looking at an LM internally, I may have to put together some examples and things like that. So There are whole strategies around how it works, which makes it almost like a kind of new coding paradigm. You could call it that. It's not like a good example, but it's how can I create a logical structure into coaxing this thing to tell me what it is that I need to know without lying to me like some of these models accidentally do. Yeah. So you need to know, generally speaking, English or some language, and you need to have some intuition on how the model works and what you're trying to get out of that domain. So it actually requires some interdisciplinary expertise in order to be a good prompt engineer in a good domain. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to walk into a model for medicine and train it appropriately because I know nothing, nothing about, about med- practicing medicine. <laughs> so that, which is, which I think is super, super interesting. So you've got this kind of space of LLMs and there's lots of people developing lots of different types of LLMs, some closed source, some open source. What are the other vectors of innovation where battles are being fought in this war for dominance in the gen AI world. So everything comes back to data. Shocker. We're literally like both work in the data industry, right? Everything comes back to the data. And the probably one of the most closely tied emerging fields is vector databases. And the idea is I have this huge corpus of data, like contracts, or we'll go back to the contract example. And I want to be able to access it intelligently using an LLM. Well, what I can do is I can embed this in a vector format. So it basically creates a long vector with varying values, which correspond to some varying concepts. And you can sort of make it as granular as you want. You could be like all the way to a page if you really wanted to, which is not very particularly well advised, all the way down to like sentences or even parts of sentences. 
And part of the reason that's really interesting is because there's a lot of work being done in a field called retrieval, which is essentially, I have a prompt that I'm trying to sort of fish this information out of this LLM. It could just be GPT-3.35, or it could be some custom model that I've built internally, which there's actually a surprising number of those, not necessarily open source, but more customized versions. And I want to put together these examples that we talked about earlier to get a better response out of it. Well, what I can do is I have this question I'm about to ask, why don't I fetch some similar examples in my database? Well, it turns out that doing a vector search format is actually the, probably the fastest and most efficient way of doing that. And so you're sort of yanking those examples out to stick in the prompt. It's called RAG Retrieval Augmented Generation, which it's kind of an old concept, but it's picking up a lot of traction now because it's a way to sort of improve the accuracy of those prompts. And so that's one area vector database. I mean, it's like every part of the AI stack, it's very divisive. Everyone's got opinions on, is it a product? Is it a feature? Is it real? Is it not? That's one of the ones that seems to be coalescing. Do you think it's a product or do you think it's a feature? I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> but they said the same thing about graph databases, right? It's like, okay, is it a product or is it a feature? It turns out that high-performant graph databases are really useful. Yeah. And maybe everything needs a killer use case. It may be that RAG is actually just like the killer use case for vector databases. When you're looking for, what do I really need this high-performance system for? Well, if I want to have really good prompt responses, RAG is really helpful. It means I don't have to go through the rigmarole of customizing this model and teaching it new things which is sort of like necessitates a vector database to go with it. Yeah. And so, like I said, they said the same thing about graph and graph is still here. So everything is still like tossed up in the air at this point. Yeah, I mean, the thing about a database is that ultimately the database is optimized for a particular type of data. So graphs for graphs and NoSQL for semi-structured data mm -hmm. and obviously vector databases for vectors or yeah. data that's formatted as a vector. And it's funny that it used to be way back when I was at Oracle, Oracle would just build the specialized algorithms into the underlying relational mm -hmm. database and they would just constantly like pull in new types of data. Mm -hmm. At the time, XML was like the most interesting one. One could see that also happening, but at the same time, there's also so much innovation based on the cloud from how you process and retrieve data just in a standard format. It'll be just interesting to see how all of that transpires. Do you have a view? Like, do you hear Snowflake folks and Databricks folks saying, ah, time for us to go build a vector database? Is that... Well, I mean, so Databricks has a sort of vector search product with its Unity catalog for information retrieval. And, you know, you look at something like Snowflake, they've sort of like hand, handed off that responsibility to partners like they've done with a lot of things. So Pinecone, I believe, is their main partner with that one. But, you know, you look at something like a MongoDB, like everything is stored in MongoDB. And it turns out, you know, MongoDB's products are like somewhat well suited for vector search and vector similarity. The sort of like base, base, base cases, you could say, oh, if you can do a dot product in the SQL query, like technically you can do vector search, which is like kind of accurate, I guess. But you're sort of losing a little bit of the nuance there. So it's a toss up for who's going to sort of dive into what. Postgres has a vector search format. MongoDB has a vector search format. Databricks has a vector search format for a unit catalog. Snowflake has decided we're going to go let someone else do it. There's a lot of different interpretations in terms of how you want to tackle that problem. What is increasingly clear is that if you want to sidestep the, a lot of the complexities for using these models, you really need to go through a vector database. And that's sort of a recent-ish development. I'd say it's probably like from developers and customers and stuff that I talked to, it's probably like last two, three months or so, I'd say, that the interest has turned around 
on RAG, which again piggybacks on the growth of all these pinecone and BB8 and chroma and lance and whatever Snowflake decides to do it or otherwise or sticks with pinecone or and how quickly are these companies growing? Fast. <laughs> yeah. When the pinecone round happened, and I've reported this in an issue in the newsletter, they had something around like two to three million ARR, and it's well past that at this point. And I think the the pickup for these has been a little surprising for a lot of people, I think. And you know, you haven't really seen like a mega round like the pinecone one recently, but obviously we're sort of in the process of reaching that practicality moment of like an industry shift where, you know, an enterprise is like, oh, if I wanted to apply an LLM, like how do I make this actually affordable? Well, it turns out RAG is like the most affordable way of doing it. So we're sort of getting to that point where, is it an inflection point? Like you could argue, right? But if the trend sticks in that direction, everyone kind of moves towards RAG, you're going to see a lot of interest growing in vector DBs. Yeah, I would imagine you would. So there's the vector database space. There's obviously the LMS space. Are there any other spaces that you're actively watching that you think are at an inflection point or similarly going to experience? Yeah. So if you remember AutoGPT at the beginning of the year, it was like, oh, like you can use this toy on your laptop to build a $50,000 a year t-shirt business by doing these five steps. It turns out, okay, you can't really do that with a general purpose agent. But if you restrict the scope of the use of what those agents are trying to do, like say, create me a SQL query for this, it turns out to be pretty effective because you're just sort of like creating this sort of logical architecture when you know when you're writing a SQL query what do you do well you write the most primitive like select star limit 500 order by random and build it out from there until you get this sort of specific result from this table and then you move it to a CTA and then you do the next thing you move that to a CTA and join those two CTEs and then you do the next one and you move that to a CTA and join those three CTEs and then by the end of it it's a sort of spaghetti code that you sort of evaluate and say okay well maybe this can be a window function and maybe this can be a little faster and so on and so forth but it follows a kind of chain of logic yeah and it turns out if you instead of say hey write me this prompt or write me this SQL query, and it jumps straight to being like, let's use window functions on this. And you say, okay, go through the process of writing this query for me. And it goes through that sort of same iterative step. It turns out that agents, which is essentially a way of chaining together prompts, is pretty well suited for that. And that extends beyond SQL. SQL is a good example. That extends beyond SQL. You can think about, okay, it could be JSON. It's another one, right? A formatted data structure. It could be what's a really repetitive workflow, a KYC or fraud, right? I haven't seen anything like that. Use agency in that situation, but you sort of see those like repetitive workflows that's sort of like step A, step B, step C, step D. And then part of the reason is the creation and growth of these, you increasingly hear them referred to as like orchestration frameworks for large language models, Llama Index and Langchain. But the kind of creation and like emergence of those has made the use of these types of agents like very practical. And so what I can do is instead of saying, okay, I'm going to have one size fits all agent that does everything for me. If I have a SQL problem, I can just sick my SQL agent on it. Or if I have a JSON problem, I can sick my JSON one on it. Or if I have a fraud problem, I can sick my fraud agent on it and so on and so forth. How can we build agents to essentially approximate? what otherwise would have been manual business processes. Yeah, or yeah. It would be a subspace of the, or an extension of many of those process modeling tools and process automation tools. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And that would feel like an area where you could have sustainable differentiation. I mean, I just spoke, for example, with a company 
actually doing almost exactly that, like taking English, turning it into SQL. And one of the things that the CEO in this case, who happened to have a PhD from a very prestigious school, you know, he said, yeah, you know, the entire LLM space is kind of just a race to zero. Obviously, there's lots of funding going into this set of technology to develop, build LLMs. How do you see it? Do you think there's sustainable differentiation and these companies are going to be worth billions and trillions of dollars in the future? Or do you see a world in which all of it goes to the open source world, some set of both, like any observations on the space? Yeah. I mean, I think what we saw with the kind of emergence of APIs originally is there are always going to be individuals and companies that are willing to trade money and control for convenience. So that's always going to be the case, right? I will hand off having to build this entire thing to an API because I can get to my minimum viable products tomorrow. And if I've got a business problem, why do I care about having to reinvent all of this stuff? Right. And so what the closed source providers like OpenAI and Anthropic and, and all these other guys offer is an API that takes two seconds to put together a chatbot. Like literally it's six lines of code if you wanted to. You can literally tell GPT-4 to write the six lines of code to create a GPT-4 chatbot using the OpenAI chat completions API. And that trade-off is always going to be there. And so what will be more challenging for the one-size-fits-all API model providers is if everything is trained on the same data, what's the differentiation? And OpenAI has this like colossal corpus of data, and they have their own crawler now, web crawler, to sort of collect more data for their current or future models. If it's all trained on the same, like Common Crawl and C3 and Wikipedia and Archive and the rest of that stuff, where's the differentiation there? Because the value, a lot of the value of the model comes from having access to unique data. That's the whole appeal of fine-tuning in the first place. Now, you can build experiences around that. You can build really good experiences around that, and you can compete on experience if you really wanted to. And there's the history of two or three developer companies pointed towards slightly different yeah. users. You know, you look at the vector database space, like it's still completely up in the air. Obviously, there's cross-pollination everywhere, but Chroma is really geared towards data scientists, and WeVA is really geared towards developers, and Pinecone does a lot of things all at once. And we've seen that kind of play out a lot of times, cart catering to specific audiences. They're all vector database products, but you can build different experiences around them. So if you're looking at sort of API providers, it's like, okay, maybe I can build a unique fine-tuning experience that differentiates me from X, and that's a product problem, right? That's not like a, is my model better than yours problem? When you get to open source, it gets a little bit different because anyone can fine-tune Llama or, you know, it's quote-unquote open source. But the thing is, you can literally do anything yeah. with these, right? I mean, if I remember correctly, Llama 2 came out and by the end of the day, someone had already ripped the guardrails off of it and put it on Hugging Face, right? That happens in hours, right? These changes happen in hours. That gets a little bit different. And where you start to see some interesting stuff there is because they're so freely available, maybe I have something unique that I've collected. I, oh, like I'm a kind of prolific writer, but I never publish my work, so I'm going to train it on my writing. And so then you start to see, okay, proprietary data starts to get a lot more interesting. And so you could say, oh, Facebook, I believe they say we don't use user data in it, but like maybe they've collected some really interesting data from PyTorch usage or something along those lines. I'm making this up, obviously. They're uniquely suited to put out a custom model that no one else can put out because they have their own data. And you could see a lot of companies potentially doing something like that. You could see sure. a lot of companies saying, okay, I have this interesting proprietary data. I'm going to make a model. Snowflake has like a LLM, I believe, because they probably have more SQL queries than anyone on the planet. So it's like, okay, if I have visibility into everyone's SQL and how it's optimized, I can make this single best SQL generator that no one else can make because no one posts SQL in Stack Overflow for obvious reasons, right? No yeah. one wants to expose their tables. 
or their schemas. So, you know, if you look at like a sort of raw performance, this score versus this score, it will be a race to the bottom. But I think a lot of the interesting things is going to be like crafting the experiences around it. And like, what does a productized LLM look like? How quickly are the best open source LLMs, are they closing the gap with the dominant proprietary models? I mean, if you ascribe to the idea that one, OpenAI was honest about the scores that it released, because we kind of have to take their word for it, and that those scores are the correct way of evaluating those models, which again, you have to buy into that this is the correct evaluation framework, which again, gets to a very divisive subject. Lead the leaderboardification, you have three people in a room and there's 15 opinions on it, yeah. I think. Then yes, there are models that technically, from like a score perspective, outperform GPD 3.5. It's like a platypus-tuned model or something along those lines on the top of Hugging Face. That being said, the evaluation space is, changes just as fast as the LLM space. And so the way we think about does model X outperform GPT 3.5, broadly speaking, well, we don't have a lot of visibility into the performance of GPT-3.5 because we don't work at OpenAI. We can throw prompts at it and we can throw a bunch of questions at it and sort of like test it and, and make them like fight each other to see which one is better at really specific things. But can you say like, is this model better than this model broadly? Yeah, you'd have to have a very strong and rigid yeah. criteria yeah. for within a domain understanding the performance of a model. And everyone agree on that. And everybody agree <laughs> that is in fact the right thing. Yeah, which yeah. is really <laughs> tough to do. But it is, I think, heartening and interesting that these open source models are so capable so quickly. Yeah, you can literally download one on a MacBook Pro and it like works like relatively well yeah. <laughs> so for, for like really basic stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And so all of this model development will take its course. We're going to watch that for the next year, two years, five years, seven years. What do you think things are going to look like a year from now? Like any crystal ball, like where does the space go? So I think one thing that, and I talked about this in one of the issues I put out is that people love to say, use the word iPhone moment. I'm also guilty of this as well, right? When the first iPhone came out, it was really clear. It was like, holy crap, there's something here. It has Safari. Mobile web was crap at the time, but it like technically has Safari. Like I can text message. YouTube is on it from Ring. YouTube was on the original one, but like Maps is on it. Like I can listen to music from. I can store my contacts and make phone calls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was one of those. Oh my god! Like this is immediately useful to me, and yeah. it's really freaking cool. Which is essentially the same thing that ChatGPT is. It's like it's really freaking cool, and it's actually immediately useful, which is part of the reason why you can look at it and be like, oh my god! Like I think this is real. We got to a point, well, one, we needed the app store, obviously, but it w wasn't until we got to a point where developers were creating this like ramshackle web of all these apps, like talking to each other and cross-posting to each other and like pulling in data from each other through APIs, like specifically REST, I think was probably like the popularization of REST is like of JSON enabled REST is probably like one of the most underrated influential moments in like modern web development, I think. And because it provided a standard protocol. Getting back to that, like everyone agreed on it, which yeah. very rarely, very rarely happens, yeah. right? And so it took a couple of years and a couple of extra developments to come into focus before it was like, okay, like this is actually life-changing technology. This has actually changed the way that I go about my daily life. I don't remember phone numbers anymore. I post 
photos of my like Milfoy to so my friends can see it and all that kind of stuff. I call a cab from my phone instead of trying to hail one. So I think what ChatGPT, aside from, you know, whatever unsanctioned usage people are doing, like writing performance reviews or emails or whatever, what it did right out the gate was solve this like really cool use case, which is like, I'm bored and I want to talk to something. And it's like a really amazing experience around that. And there's like character AI and some other offshoots that kind of double down and triple down on that. I'm bored and I want to talk to someone or talk to something and like have an interesting discussion. But we are still missing a couple pieces, I think, to start to get to whatever those killer use cases are. The onboarding buddy, I think, is probably like one of the cooler ones that I've heard in a while. What does it do? It's basically, it's like, you know, you join a company and it's like, who do I message for X? And what's an etiquette for reporting a bug in the Slack channel? Like, what's the actual table schema? Because I've got 50 tables with the same name and there's like an underscore one, underscore two, and like 49 are deprecated, but it turns out number 39 is the one that's actually live, right? So you start to see like little glimpses of interesting things like that come up. And it's a byproduct of some of the kind of one level down techniques, right? So something like that, you need to fine tune it. You need to introduce your own company data into it in order to make it operational, right? It needs to know like, what's the Slack etiquette? Like you need my Slack channels, you need my Slack information, which gets the whole question of what is ETL for LLMs? Like that's a minefield that like we're not even going to walk into right now. But I think there's still a kind of like couple of missing pieces that really do boil down to like practicality in the same way that APIs just made like apps talking to each other really practical. Yeah. That's part of the reason why RAG is really interesting because you know, in addition to making it cheaper and more efficient, it's just easier to do, conceptually speaking. I mean, assuming you, you know, you're able to like spin up a vector database and you know how to store this stuff efficiently and chunk it efficiently. The idea of using RAG is literally just like, let me get better information and stick it in this prompt. Instead of having to like train it and fine-tune it and have experts that know how to use these LLMs on staff and things like that. So you have to wait, start to see the difficulty of managing these things come down a bit more before we start to see those like really interesting killer use cases. Do you think the APIs and the underlying protocols are advancing quickly enough? I, If you asked me three months ago, I probably would have said no. I think from everyone I've talked to about RAG, I would say like a soft maybe hmm. now. I think we'll call it like a soft yes because of the pace of like innovation, which is when we say innovation, it's hacking around the limitations to make these things actually practical to use, which started like almost right, right from the get-go, right? We had, to wrap, you can rattle off 50 terms like low-rank adaptation or quantization or things like that. All these terms are basically like, let's make this thing easier to train and run on less powerful hardware. And so a lot of developers have been like hacking around the limitations of these larger language models for a couple months now. And it happened really fast. And then it kind of slowed down a little bit. And then RAG came around, which again, it's old. But it's like seen as like, okay, like maybe I can hack around the limitations of LLMs here and get like a lot of gains out of it. And so the biggest issue that these LLMs have are obviously is they don't have access to recent data. They hallucinate, which is probably the biggest issue. They can be really expensive. You know, if you look at the cost for using a fine-tuned GPT 3.5 turbo, it's like very not cheap. There's like regulatory requirements for some situations, right? If you can knock out all four of those, plus whatever like kind of problems are in the periphery, then you can start to really rapidly experiment in a way that we saw in Web 2, which was basically like add a third one to it, like App Store, Web APIs, and 3G, 
right? So suddenly these API calls were actually really snappy and fast because we had 3G on yeah. phones, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so add a third one to it, right? The one that seems to me to be the most difficult one is the hallucination mm-hmm. effect of these models because there's obvious hallucination a la the Microsoft... Bing chat. Bing chat. You know, you you don't have a girlfriend. I'm your girlfriend. I love you, whatever it was. But then there's like just slight errors, which are much more insidious, much more hard to detect. Like missing a decimal point on an ARR number. Oh, for sure. No one wants to be the first person to put a wrong number in a board meeting. (laughs) For sure. For sure. And or making an incorrect recommendation on either important things or even unimportant things like pricing of airline fares. Not, Not catastrophic, but it's also just wrong. Yeah. Right. That one seems to me to be one of the toughest. And I think in some ways it's almost like self-driving cars. The thing about driving cars, it's life and death. And mm-hmm. people don't want to resign themselves over to death by automated vehicle or autonomous vehicle. But I think it's got a lot of the same characteristics. And I, I'm just curious to see if it, it is a really interesting moment, but I'm just curious to see how long it takes for people to actually both lose trust and develop trust over time. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of business processes are like, there's no yes or no, it's stochastic. Right, in a lot of these places. And what an LLM provides you is a stochastic answer, which may or may not be accurate. It probably is more likely to be accurate than not. And I think that never say never, obviously. But in the current state of development, like you can't ever say that there will never be a hallucination. But you can basically do a lot of work to limit those and get that as close to zero as physically possible. And if you can get it within the bounds of human error, then it starts to get really interesting. I personally would not do that for AVs. But when you talk about maybe I'm in a a quarterly business review or something along those lines, and I realize using an LM, I can get this really advanced metric that's actually really interesting and is much more directionally and a much better directional indicator for our success than this other potential metric that we've been using for a long time. Is it off by a point? Maybe. But is it the end of the world if it's off by a point if that metric is actually like way more accurate than the one that we've been using prior. Oh, super interesting. And then, you know, I mean, we have have friends who are developing companies or building companies that are trying to develop LLMs for health advice Mm -hmm. in non-critical care settings. Super, super interesting. Because there's a lot of work that primary care doctors do, some of which can be wrote in mechanic. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about Databricks and Snowflake. You've done a ton of reporting on them. Obviously, two of the biggest companies in data. How much overlap is there in your experience between what the companies are up to? I'm sure if you talk to your customers, you ask them, like, which one are you using? They're probably going to say both, more, more likely than not. And part of the reason is because Databricks has always been a very data science native product, and Snowflake has always been a very analytics native product. And Snowflake, as a data warehouse, is an amazing data warehouse. It was a like industry altering product in the same way that Databricks is like an amazing data lake management product, right? And it's like amazing for doing a lot of like very complicated machine learning problems. Now, granted, both companies are like data companies. And the way you win as a data company is I have all of your data and you're doing that stuff on me, right? As long as you're firing addition operations on my servers, I don't care, right? And so you look at like the valuation of the company, like Databricks was $38 billion in its last round or something along those lines. And Snowflake, I think today I checked, it was like a $55 billion company or something along those lines. So clearly they, they both are enormous markets and it would make sense for them to go into each other's markets, right? So Snowflake, they play around and toy with machine learning and try and invest in it. They were dragging their feet on Python for the longest time, right? And then they finally put out Snowpark originally in 2022 to finally support Python, which is a requirement 
and machine learning flat out. And then they bought Streamlit for 800 million, which is an incredibly easy to use product. And obviously, like Databricks has its own warehouse and warehouse product. And they look at the lake house paradigm as like a way to unify that. They're two very different data types, which makes things a little bit weird, right? Tabular data and, and unstructured data like lend themselves very much to like different use cases. There's some overlap, obviously. But I just want all of your stuff on my servers. And if I have to go into like warehouses to get your stuff on my servers to get your tabular data, then I'll go into warehouses, right? Or if I have to go into ML to get your stuff on Iceberg in my servers, like fine, I'll go into ML to a certain extent. And so when you think about like rivalry, like it's not Celtics Lakers, because again, you talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, you use like Databricks for X and stuff like for Y, right? But at the same time, if your goal is like, you just sign a contract. I want that contract in my servers. Stick it in this data lake here. Both of them have an incentive to like get that because you get like a compute there and like maybe you know, you have Fivetran and DB, a DBT cycle and maybe there's a high touch cycle on the other end and all this kind of stuff. And so you have like suddenly 55 SQL queries going on in here for one event. There's obviously an incentive to get that there. You know, when you think about it, if you kind of like take a step back and say, okay, they're both data layer companies, then they're obviously going after the same customer. They've crafted very different experiences around it and they're sort of good at different things, but it obviously makes sense even if it can snap out like 10% of this or like 15% of this. That's actually like a very big market. Yeah, it's a very material amount of spend. And do you talk to CIOs or customers that are buying who are trying to consolidate these workloads? Or is this a fight that's really happening at the user level more than it is around the budget level? Yeah, I think if there were concerns around budget, it's probably because the data stack is sprawled out a little too aggressively. You know, where you have five train and DBT and like all these interstitials here, and then you have an orchestration layer on top of it, and then you're getting to your output, like where are you putting your output, like does go into a looker and all those things, right? And so when you look at the two companies, Snowflake has a very partner-centric approach where they hand off a lot of the complexities to like companies that they connect with and work with really closely. Pinecone's a great example, right? Pinecone's vector to be as a partner of them. Whereas Databricks has crafted this like holistic or, you know, is in the process of crafting this like holistic horizontal data management platform for ML. And then if the Lakehouse paradigm turns out as expected, then structured data will also be a part of that. Databricks also partners with a lot of companies, but they have their own quote unquote competing products for some of its partners, right? I think Alation maybe is a good example, right? Where technically Databricks offers a catalog product, but like they also work really closely with Alation because a lot of people prefer Alation, right? And so if you were to put the two strategies side by side, they represent different philosophies, I think, for how to build a company. How to build a company. Yeah. I think that's right. One's trying to vertically integrate and the other one is trying to be very specialized. And the jury is still out on that, right? And realistically, they're probably going to coexist and they're probably going to continue snapping away at like little bits and pieces of each other's market. And there's not going to be like a single winner and people are still going to use both of them in some way or another. But again, it gets back to the whole like most problems that companies need to solve. They're not actually that complicated. It's like, what is the lifetime value of this customer or this set of customers? That's not a incredibly complicated mathematical problem to solve. And as long as you satisfy that business use case, as long as you're like awesome at making it easy to address that specific question or that specific problem, you don't have to go all the way down into like LLMs if you really didn't want to. What I think is the reality of this case is that what you're describing, and I think what people when they get caught up in the competitive dynamic or the competitive point of view, see is that there's sort of 
winner take all markets or that these markets are sort of zero sum, but actually these markets are quite distinct, even though they're positioned as rivals, they're selling very different things and often to very different people. And that's also what makes these markets so interesting and dynamic and fun because there's so much to go do. Matt, it's been fun to speak with you as always. Thank you for taking the time and look forward to having you back on again. Thanks. In today's chat, Matt delivered a crash course on LLMs. He started from the fundamental concept of what an LLM is, delved into vector databases, and discussed the trends and companies that are driving the market forward. The rise of GenAI shows that LLMs are accessible to everyone. However, all models aren't created equal. Crafting effective prompts is crucial for keeping users focused, and context that we initially feed the model will drive how useful the model is in solving different problems. Matt also helped us understand more about the Snowflake Databricks rivalry. In his view, one is taking a more vertically integrated approach, while the other is leaning more on a broad ecosystem. With its Unity catalog, Databricks offers its own vector search product, while Snowflake relies on partners like Pinecone to provide vector databases. Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you, Matt, for joining us and helping us understand words and trends that we hear a ton about but don't always fully understand. I'm your host, Satin Sangani, CEO of Alation. And Data Radicals, stay the course, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. Data mature organizations can effectively find and leverage high volumes of data. They're also more likely to acquire and retain customers while also outperforming peers. For a framework for benchmarking and advancing your data management capabilities, download this white paper. It's called The Path to Data Excellence, the Alation Data Maturity Model at alation.com slash DMM. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash D-M-M. 